So hi once again, my fellow COVID-19ers. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. Um, as you know, we are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here we believe that every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In a normal episode, we would be talking with one of our consultants, exploring one of our different types of engagements. We would describe the issues those engagements weren't designed to address and how we solve them. And t- but today we're going to come to you live. Um, this is the first time we've done that, trying something a little bit different, letting you see how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, we are continuing with our sixth episode in our series covering the key principles in Construct CEO and Chief Software Engineer Steve McConnell's new book, More Effective Agile. I will defer the long intro that we have normally used on the previous five episodes because, hey, we're all friends now. And so welcome back, Steve, to the podcast. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So today we're going to cover an additional three principles, the first two of which fall under the heading of more effective agile requirements creation. And just to kind of frame this, many engagements that Construct's technical service providers conduct um, usually involve help in the requirements area, requirements practices. It seems like this is an area that companies have found to, as you say, be really thorny issues uh, literally for decades. Right. Um, there have been a lot of studies that indicate that the most common causes of project failure and, and project challenges are traceable to requirements. So what do you think that is the requ- is the issue with that? Why do you think at, at a general level, why do you think pe- people have so many different challenges with requirements? Yeah, I comment in the book that in the sequential development days, study after study, basically my whole career found that the most common cause of project challenge and failure was a set of problems related to requirements, uh, requirements that were incompletely defined, defined incorrectly, uh, contradictory, uh, that kind of thing. Um, And then as we've moved into agile development over the last 15 years, uh, I think we talk less about requirements per se. But the role that's been the most problematic for organizations to fill has been the product owner role. And the product owner role is about requirements. And uh, I think requirements are, I I do think that they're difficult. It doesn't matter whether you're doing agile or sequential development, uh, mostly because requirements is the activity where you're trying to translate the real, real world need into something that can be addressed somehow or other in a software system. And so that translation activity uh, <laughs> touches two weak points. One is people's understanding of whatever the real world issue is that they're trying to address. Uh, and I think we've seen for probably the entire history of software, but certainly for my career, uh, that that's a disruptive activity. Uh, the activity of asking people to define uh, what is it that you're trying to solve uh, causes them to change their understanding of what the problem that they're trying to solve. So we get this idea that it's a, a disruptive activity and in other contexts, I think that I've described why I think that's part of what makes uh, software development a so-called wicked problem where the, um, the, the definition of which is a problem that you cannot uh, fully define until you've at least partially solved it. Um, so I think that's part sure. of it. And then I think the other part of it is just that you know, we have this intersection of not just defining uh, uh, what the real world problem is, but we also just have some limits on what software can do in terms of trying to address the real world problem or what it can do in a cost effective way. And so there needs to be some back and forth in working with the people who understand the problem really well 
to uh, understand, well, you know, in what ways can that be addressed uh, that's cost effective and that solves the problem? And so we need to have some back and forth. And I think that's been challenging over the years, too, because there's basically this impedance mismatch between the business staff and their understanding of the issue they're trying to solve and the technical staff and their technical understanding. And and so we we basically we we benefit from a really high bandwidth communication between of shared understanding of business people sharing their understanding of the business issue and software people understanding their or sharing their understanding of the technical capabilities. Right. And sometimes that sharing doesn't happen in a high bandwidth way. A lot of times it doesn't happen in a high bandwidth way. And so we end up with miscommunication or fragmented communication. Um, and then once that flows down into the actual software development activity, we see the manifestations of that uh, in the actual software. That's a good point. I like the, the, the your use of the word impedance, being electrical engineer. kind of. I use that for you, Mark. I'm sure you did, so... So let's let's touch on the first key principle for today, and that's a practice in Agile that's around organizing and prioritizing the inbound work. And that pre- key principle is refine the product backlog. So tell us about this particular principle and what role refinement plays in helping with the overall Agile requirements management practices. Yeah, so refining the product backlog is really the Agile version of what I was just kind of walking through. Uh, typically, in Agile, we have fairly loosely defined requirements. They're really more placeholders for requirements uh, than they are uh, detailed requirements. Uh, And so the product backlog refinement is really the activity of fleshing out in detail what the requirement actually is. Uh, And and so that invokes all of the issues that I was just running through, where we have to have some good communication between the business side, which is typically represented by the product owner, uh, and the technical side represented by the the Agile team. uh, I think the thing that's, that's different about Agile and that I think uh, is a very powerful part of Agile is the idea that we're not going to try to attempt all of that refinement in the very early stage of the project. We're going to attempt that refinement on a just-in-time basis. And I have a diagram in the book that um, I like pretty well that is intended to show the way that these concepts get tightened up as we get closer to actually implementing them. And I think there's actually value in leaving them a little bit loose uh, if we're not very close to implementing them, because it allows us to flex them more without making a big investment in work that we ultimately throw away. Uh, so the idea of, of backlog refinement is is really, you know, it's twofold. One is that it's making sure that when we get to the beginning of implementation, and in Scrum that would be the beginning of, of really sprint planning, that we've got fully defined uh, backlog items or requirements that are defined in enough detail that the team knows what to do to implement them. So part of it is making sure you do enough in time. But I think part of it also is making sure you don't do too much too early uh, because that just represents work that is at risk of changing and and therefore being thrown away before we actually get to implementing it. I think that's a really powerful difference between agile development and sequential development where when we're trying to develop to uh, define a whole the vast majority of requirements in detail very early on, we end up having this concept that I think didn't get as much attention back in the day as it should have, but the concept was of requirement spoilage. That is, how, how many of the requirements actually spoil by the time you get to, to implement them? And requirement spoilage is just nowhere near the issue in, in Agile that it was in sequential development. Yeah, that, 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 that's really true. And I think, you know, a part of this whole process of, of 
of backlog refinement and continuing to work on something is to make sure that the team isn't looking for work, right? That, that, right. that, that that's, there's enough backlog there that they can get moving. And, and you, you know, the, your, your point is very well taken that, that um, I think the team sometimes, if they don't have enough information, being self-motivated, being, being self-driven and self-governed, they, they'll try and resolve or, or fill in the gaps on their own. And that's really sometimes dangerous because you'll, ha- you'll right. have a tendency to, 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 to make assumptions on something that wasn't stated in the, by, by the stakeholders. Yeah, the the backlog refinement ends up being a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, if we don't have, and, and I would say in the work that we've done with companies, fairly often we see um, inadequate backlog refinement as a challenge area for the companies. And the problem, if you're not doing, and that's partially related to difficulty in fill, filling the product owner role uh, in a really a really effective way too. So you know. If we have a really good product owner, then some of these issues go away. But if we don't have a good product owner, or if the product owner is spread too thin across too many projects, you know, then we can get into issues like they do requirements definition in batch mode, and then we're back to the idea that the requirements change and spoil before the team implements them. If they do elaboration too early, that elaboration ends up being wasted. Um, we can get into the the issue of too many requirements are defined. But by the time you get there, you don't really need the requirement anymore. So the team spends time implementing functionality that's not that's basically not not valuable. Um, and then we also just get the the real issue, well, the common issue of the team being starved for requirements. So they just don't have enough work defined by the time they they need to actually start doing uh, the detailed development work. And I think that's probably that's probably the most common problem. These other problems are. They're there, but I think they're a little bit more uh, academic. The the most common problem we see on the ground is teams being starved for uh, adequately defined uh, requirements. Right. I mean, the picture you refer to, um, yeah, for those of you of listeners who actually have the book, um, figure 13.13.4, I think, is the figure that um, talks about backlog emphasizing the just-in-time refinement. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you want to describe that. I mean, it's it's kind of a upside down pyramid or a funnel, if you will, of, <laughs> of things from the top that are less refined and as it, and it goes down. So, just give give our listeners a little feel for what that looks. Well, like. Well, yeah, I mean, the reason I put it in the book as a figure is because it worked better visually than. Um, so <laughs> sorry about that. Value there is in defining it. I will say that one thing I like about this figure is that uh, in agile work, typically the backlog is defined as a queue where you pull items off the top of the queue. And in the review version of the book, in the very early review version of the book, for internal purposes, I had this figure drawn as kind of a funnel, you know, with gravity feeding the the functionality down and it becoming increasingly refined as you get toward the bottom of the funnel. Based on internal review here at Constructs, um, I got feedback saying, do you really want to go against the the grain on uh, having your product backlog items come out the bottom instead of off the top. So for the external review version of the book, I had the figure with the items coming off the top and, uh, and actually readers found that really confusing. And so based on reviewer feedback, I turned it upside down again so that it looks more like a gravity feed system and, and, uh, the items come out the bottom. But, uh, but the key point of the figure is just the idea that, when you're pretty far away from actually implementing a feature or epic or story, whatever it is, 
it's okay to have it not be very well defined. In fact, it, you know, it's probably beneficial to have not a lot of work invested in it. Uh, but as you get closer to the actual time you're going to implement it, you want to make sure you have the work defined well enough that you, the team can implement it uh, uh, as intended. Yeah. I mean, that's back to the point of filling in the gaps. You want, right. you want them to be really understanding. So in, in terms of, of uh, approaches that a product owner and the team can take to, to actually populate the backlog, you mentioned two primary approaches for doing that. Maybe you can talk right. a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I differentiate. They're not really approaches, but I guess categories of approaches between uh, top-down and we're really talking here about requirements elicitation. So the activity of just identifying what are the requirements. We're not talking about defining them in detail or making sure they're not contradictory. We're really just talking about how to discover what's out there. So that's the elicitation activity. And for elicitation purposes, I find it useful to differentiate between top-down versus bottom-up uh, elicitation techniques. Uh, the top-down techniques are uh, in software, we usually use top-down in this way. We start with general uh, sorts of uh, con concepts, uh, uh, such as a story map or a product vision or an elevator pitch or that kind of thing. Uh, and then we refine that in increasing detail. So we start big and then work toward the details. Uh, in the bottom-up approach, we start with the details and then try to build something bigger out of the details. Uh, so we might start by trying to enumerate all the user stories we can think of or holding requirements, solicitation interviews with end users, or maybe in a legacy system, uh, reviewing problem reports or uh, the existing change requests. Um, and then we try to build up something coherent from, from uh, that set of, of individual small pieces. Um, you know, either approach, uh, both approaches have their place. Uh, and so top-down is typically what teams find more useful when they're in a development of a new system. Uh, Bottom-up right. can be more useful when they're working on a legacy system. Uh, and, you know, the challenges end up being kind of the inverse of each other. With top-down, sometimes um, you don't really get enough detail in time. Uh, and that's really what we've been talking about. With bottom-up, uh, what we can end up, and we haven't really talked about this, but with bottom-up, we can end up essentially losing sight of the forest for the trees. We get so much detail, we don't end up having a coherent overall uh, picture. And I think that's one of the challenge modes for Agile in general is the idea that uh, we have a lot of pieces and at an individual atomic level, there's value in each of the pieces, but somehow or other, the whole is less than the sum of the parts because we don't have an overarching vision for what the pieces are supposed to add up to. And so that's really, uh, you know, there are ways to overcome that, but uh, we've seen that happen in any number of organizations we've worked with in terms of right. uh, just, you know, somehow, somehow you, you know, at a detailed level, it makes sense, but at a larger level, it doesn't. So there right. could be some, there's work needed to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, and, and it's, you know, there are a lot of symptoms. I think we ticked off a few of them in terms of, th of indicators that there's not enough refinement that's actually happening in the practices. You know, I mean, th the worst case would be the team could get, get, could just get off on the wrong foot from the very beginning. And and again, right. maybe maybe that's a symptom. Also, you know, if you get way way into the weeds and and too articulate on a on a fine grained detail at the beginning, that could be that could lead you to the same kind of result. Yeah, I know. As a as a programmer, I do think of things in terms of uh, computer algorithms sometimes, and I think of that as an iterative practice that doesn't converge. 
you know, if you don't have the right seed value for your iterative algorithm, sometimes it will diverge instead of converging. And so you really have to have the, the, the seed has to be close enough to what you want that your iteration converges on, on what you ultimately want. Well, another another uh, element of another indicator of some refinement issues would be, um, for example, um, items that are that are accepted into the backlog that really haven't been properly sized. So when the team gets it, they have to actually almost halt their activities and, and remedy that. Right. So that's another another thing that gets pushed back on the product owner and the, and the refinement practices is to make sure that those things are properly sized heading into the sprint. Yeah, we, we really don't want the teams doing work refining the backlog items during the sprint. I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're not going to be perfect. And there are going to be times when we just run into something that despite good intentions and best efforts, uh, we didn't quite uncover. But, you know, the, the typical day-to-day uh, flow events should be that things are pretty darn well defined by the time we actually get to implementing them. And if we do see a team that's spending a lot of time refining during the sprint, that especially if those that refinement uh, uncovers surprises that disrupt the sprint, that is suggestive that the the worklog items or the backlog items are not being refined uh, to a level of detail that's really uh, adequate to support the the work of the team in the sprint. Mm-hmm. What maybe you can describe for for the listeners what does a typical backlog refinement session look like and. And maybe what what does a good product owner do to make sure that you have a good session? Yeah, I think um, um, typical backlog refinement session, you know, in a scrum context is going to include the product owner um, and scrum master and the development team. Um, I think you want the whole team involved so that they can have a shared understanding. Uh, it's going to involve discussion of uh, prioritization, which really the product owner should be bringing into the refinement session because the prioritization Correct. is mostly a business decision. You know, if you find out that something is going to be enormous, that could change. And when, whereas you thought it was going to be tiny, then that might change the prioritization. But, you know, normally you want to have a prioritized uh backlog uh, as much as possible coming into uh, the backlog refinement session. Uh, you know, and most of this is about, you know, the word refining, I think, is a good word. It implies that you're kind of breaking things down into pieces and making sure that each of the pieces makes sense. And I think that really is what you're doing. Uh, you know, you're splitting epics into stories and stories into smaller stories, clarifying details, uh, making sure that you understand what the acceptance criteria for uh, the stories are and, you know, to some degree estimating uh, the story so that if you think something's a high priority, but only if it's really small, uh, you know, you can right. modify that if you need to. I hear you know a few things about estimation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I like, unfortunately for me, estimation is sort of the, uh, the uh, what is it? The rocks of whatever anyway yeah the briar <laughs> patch how's that uh there you go there you go uh you know uh, i don't need much of an excuse to to dive down that rabbit hole absolutely well that's this is i think we uh that, that's a good coverage of that particular um principle i think i want to move on to um the second principle we we're going to address today and that's the the notion uh create and use a definition of ready uh-huh. and and i think that 
Agile folks in particular already understand clearly what the definition of done is. I think most Agile training and coaching has beat that into into uh, people's minds. You think so? And, yeah. And, and we'll actually cover that again in, in more detail in the next podcast episode. But definition of ready for some is, in, is kind of a new charter. So what does that mean? And And what are we talking about when a product backlog item passes this definition of ready test? Yeah, definition of ready uh, is, you know, in generic terms, is an idea that uh, we want to help the team avoid moving work to the next stage before it's really done uh, to an adequate degree in, in the previous stage. And by stage, I just mean stage of the individual work item. <clears throat> um, and uh, basically, definition of ready is normally applied to you know, requirements or stories or epics, whatever the team is going to use to guide their implementation work. Uh, and, and we normally consider a backlog item to be ready when the team understands it well enough to decide whether it's doable during the sprint. Um, it's been estimated and it's going to fit in the sprint without it being a big stretch uh, and that it's uh, largely uh, dependency free or at least free enough of dependencies that it's not going to block implementation during the sprint and you have acceptance criteria for it. You know, the, the interesting thing to me from a sequential development point of view on definition of ready is Agile has done a really nice job of inserting what once upon a time would have been called exit criteria, entry criteria or exit criteria into the process, but the terminology is different and I think, and I think it's better accepted. Uh, you know, I think in the sequential days, we would have a bunch of phases and in a really well-run sequential project, each phase would have entry criteria and exit criteria. And those were essentially the same thing. Definition of ready for the entrance criteria, definition of done for the exit criteria. Uh, but in agile development, we're applying very similar concepts, but at a much finer level of detail. So we're not saying the phase is you know, definition of ready or the phase is definition of done. We're saying the individual work item meets the definition of ready, the individual work item meets the definition of done. Uh, and so, you know, to me, this is a really powerful transformation of a concept that is a familiar concept from sequential development, but has been refined in the sense that it gets applied to smaller items. And I think by applying it to smaller items and making that the default, uh, then I think we uh, end up uh, make, taking this original concept and making it a lot more usable a lot more useful and a lot more palatable to the people who are doing the work. That's a great answer. You know, I mean, the, the, the notion of a defined acceptance criteria, I think is, is really what you want to push for. And, and, you know, some people might say testable, you know, you, you there's this notion of uh, acceptance test driven development. That's been, uh, mm -hmm. that's now be kind of a big thing. Uh, TDD work, I think for, for developers and any like unit test frameworks and things of that nature have, I think largely caught on for a lot of people, and this notion of ATDD has been um, in recent in recent times. I think uh, uh, um, something that more people are moving towards, and I think again that that closes the that closes the gap. I think in terms of what do we define to be success, right? What is yeah, it I think you know testable is a useful heuristic. Um, I, I think the notion of testable as a criteria is. At this point, I, I would say at this point in time, I think it's a little bit outdated. I mean, the idea of, of a criteria for a requirement that it be testable is kind of based on the sequential development practice of thinking that testing is going to lag significantly behind 
uh, requirements elaboration work and the detailed implementation work. You know, in Agile, normally we we want the testing to be done as close to possible as after the the implementation work, or ideally like in parallel, and in some cases even preceding the implementation work. So I think the notion of testable, um, you know, it's certainly still a relevant notion, but I think the connotation is a little a little out of date at this point. So I think that's why we end up having more elaborate. Uh, definition of ready than just saying testable. Gotcha. So who actually um, creates a definition of ready? Uh, normally we want the team to create their own definition of ready. Uh, you know, the goal of the definition normally ends up being similar to what I described a couple minutes ago. Um, you know, and if you want to use the shorthand of saying that it's testable, free from dependencies and estimated, uh, I think that's fine. Um, uh, but really, you know, the overarching goal is is literally the the literal meaning of the phrase uh, that it's uh, the work is ready uh, to move into the next uh, the next stage. So is that so? If you have a a project or a program that's that is um, being supported by multiple teams, is it possible that different teams might have a slightly different definition of ready that they that they kind of agree to? Uh, yeah, it's possible. I think. Um, you know, the, I think individual teams can develop kind of nuances and meanings that are really very specific to, to those teams. And I think one of the interesting things about going through the peer review process on the book, which, as we've discussed before, was extensive. I got comments from more than 300 software leaders on the book uh, is, you know, people do develop uh, very uh, uh, elaborated meanings for specific words that are meaningful to them and their team, but may not be meaningful outside of, of, of their right. team. And so I think the idea that you allow the team to you know, develop its own understanding and meaning of its definition of ready, uh, it really does make sense. I mean, it's, it's really part of the process of getting team buy-in into their own definition of ready. Uh, and similarly, in a, in a multi-team environment, which of course is lots of the work that's done, you know, then you can end up having multiple levels of definition of ready or, uh, you know, the definition of ready can apply to different, you know, different right. activities. But, you know, you need to have some, you need to have some kind of coordination across the team so that uh, the, or, or a general standard for what the definition of ready is so that the teams, when one team says that they meet the definition of ready, the other team has at least an approximately accurate sense of what that means. True. If they're connecting as well, does the definition necessarily stay fixed or, or can the team inspect and adapt as it goes a different set of criteria, maybe based on if they do retrospectives and find something they didn't like about that, that could be traced to, to having some issues uh, with the definition already. Is that, is that pretty normal to have that kind of uh, iteration? I think it's normal for the team to iterate on its understanding of its definition of ready you know, I think that's one reason that it's important to let the team pick its own exact wording uh, because, uh, you know, they may go through a <laughs> retrospective and say, okay, well, we thought this meant the definition of ready, but, you know, it, it, it slipped, something slipped through because we, you know, didn't check for this one thing. Yeah, so definition of ready can certainly evolve over time. Um, if it starts changing substantially and if there's a good standard in the first place for making sure the definition of ready really does serve as an entrance criteria, entry criteria. Um, 
you know, what you don't want is for it to evolve in a way that makes it um, sloppier. Um, but if it evolves in a way that just represents a team's greater understanding, I think that's expected. Well, that, I think that's great. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I think that that probably leaves teams with a feeling of, of you know, some flexibility there. So I, I think we're going to leave the first two principles there. We're going to shift away for, from the requirements topic for the, the, the last principle we're going to talk to you today, which is um, about agile quality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually will bridge into the next full episode, which will cover more principles related to this one. But what we want to describe uh, today is the principle to minimize the uh, defect detec- uh, detection gap. Right. And and you know, from a certain perspective, this is about how long a defect exists in the course of the project development timeline and the cost of that latency, right? Right. So, you know, why do we want to min- minimize that? What's the issue there? Why why is that a big deal? Well, it, you know, I think this is I think if I, I have various talks that talk about the most powerful ideas in software development and this notion of defect detection gap. I always include in those talks because I think this is one of the absolutely core concepts, whether you're doing sequential development or agile development, it's really important to understand how valuable it is to minimize the gap between when a defect is created or inserted into the, into the the project versus when it's detected and removed from the project. And the problem is the more defects, the longer the time goes between when we insert defects and when we identify and remove them, the longer the period of time is that we have a pool of latent defects, defects that are in the software, but that we haven't actually detected and taken action on yet. And if you just think of it from like a queuing point of view, uh, if you've got defects entering at a certain rate, but you're delaying how long it takes you to take them out, you're going to have more in the pool uh, between the time they enter the pool and when they exit the pool. And the problem with having latent defects in the software is that nobody ever plans for the amount of effort that's required to fix them. And so they're destabilizing from a project predictability and project management point of view. Um, And then they're also destabilizing from a quality point of view or from a a development efficiency point of view because debugging against a a low quality background tends to be a more difficult activity than debugging against a high quality stable background. and so, and and then I think the the other factor is that we've got this whole notion of defect cost increase, or the idea that uh, if you insert a defect early in the system and then um, downstream work or dependent work um, starts being done on the basis of defective earlier work, uh, then when you fix that earlier work, you don't just have to fix it; you have to fix all of the dependent work downstream, and. If you know, if you just say for the sake of argument, let's say that we fix every defect within 10 minutes of when it's inserted, there's basically no opportunity for downstream work to be created that's based on that defective upstream work. Um, and I use upstream and downstream, and I'm sometimes people might think that implies uh, sequential, but really it's upstream downstream for that feature or for the the stream of work that depends Correct. on yeah. on that particular feature. Uh, so, but if, you know, if you also say that that same defect, instead of being corrected in 10 minutes, it takes, uh, two months to correct the defect. Well, now there's all kinds of opportunity for, uh, dependent work to be based on that defective earlier work. And now when we identify finally the defect in that earlier work, we have potentially the work, not just of correcting that, but correcting all that downstream work. So, 
So, you know, what we really want to do is employ practices that minimize the gap, that help us minimize the gap between the time the defect is inserted and the time the defect is detected and uh, removed. And when we talk about defects, people's minds seem to naturally go most often to coding defects. And coding defects are, are typically not the most expensive kinds of defects uh, to fix. Uh, you know, I think Agile started out kind of focused on coding and coding defects, but as time has gone by, I think it has moved upstream in some really useful ways and talked about requirements, defects, and so on. And so what we were just talking about earlier with definition of ready is a terrific example of trying to minimize that defect detection gap where, you know, before, if we don't identify that we have errors in requirements, such as the requirement is not really being ready to implement, then we can spend like, you know, a whole sprint implementing a mistaken idea of what the requirements are supposed to be. Whereas if we review that requirement at sprint planning time, we apply the definition of ready and we say, hey, this thing doesn't meet the definition of ready yet. And we work on something else that is ready. And then we get that thing ready for the next sprint. Now, when we work on it, we actually spend the whole sprint working on something that's actually defined uh, correctly. And the work, the work is fine. We don't have to throw it away. You know, so it doesn't have to be a sequential environment where this concept applies. It applies very much in Agile. And it applies very much to what we've just been talking about in terms of trying to nip these problems in the bud and uh, you know, requirements in particular, trying to identify requirements issues before we start doing implementation work uh, based on the requirements. And definition of ready is a, a key practice for that. So we took off some agile practices that support that earlier detection, things like unit testing, right? That's, a, that's an example of something you could deploy. Yeah, sure. So the, the, uh, Unit testing is one that minimizes the, the gap between insertion of defect into code uh, versus, uh, well, minimizes the, the gap between when you create a coding defect and when you detect it. And then if you're actually using a test first development where you're writing the test cases first, that activity will often cause you to realize Exposed that you're stuff. under sure. And so you wouldn't even write the coding defect in the first place. And that's really the ideal, that's kind of the holy grail of minimizing the defect detection gap is to, to work in such a way that the defect never gets created in the first place. Right. I mean, pair programming is another way, although, you know, in some respects, that's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor from the original days of, of Agile, but that's, that's, that's another practice. Oh, correct? it definitely still has its advocates. And, and <laughs> uh, we talked about that. I can't remember if we've already talked about that, but um, but as an example of a practice that minimizes the defect detection gap, yeah, absolutely. It's a great example because, you know, if you type something in and your pair programming buddy sitting next to you says, hey, you, you know, you named that, you chose the wrong variable for that or whatever, you know, the gap there is seconds. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's pretty quick. I mean, most teams, I think, should be using tools that do static analysis. That's another area that, that can be put to bear on this, right? Yep, static analysis tools are um, again good for detecting coding defects very close to the source. Yeah, How about things like uh, by definition, if you're going to go into a continuous integration kind of an environment, that's a big one, right? To, to you, you want yes. to try and lead into that. Sure, anything where we're doing like full lifecycle development and very short uh, in very short cycles, a continuous integration where we're going all the way to the end, uh, very very frequently. Uh, is certainly 
another example of how we would minimize that defect detection gap. It, you know, I, I kind of think of this as a set of, of uh, um, uh, overlapping circles or concentric circles or something like that, where, mm -hmm. you know, at the very micro level, we've got uh, practices that minimize the gap at the, the detailed coding level. So that's like the unit testing and, and so on, continuous um, integration. In Scrum, we've got the idea that we're going to do normally, most often, two-week sprints. So if we miss something at the detailed level, we're pretty sure we're going to catch it at the two-week level. So that gives us another wrapper around that, uh, that uh, 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 you know, more fine-grained uh, attempt to uh, minimize the defect detection gap. Um, you know, and then if we're using practices like Kanban, where we're really focused just on the life cycle of each individual work item. You know, now we're trying to go full life cycle, one work item at a time, essentially. And so we can uh, apply this defect detection gap minimization idea at each individual work item uh, level. And so that, you know, really gives us uh, some very tight concentric circles in terms of the number of uh, ways that we're going to guarantee that we catch those defects quickly. Oh, that's a good visual. I appreciate that. And, and just the idea that, that in a, in a really well run agile process that you, you, you spend a lot of energy describing in the book, um, a potentially releasable candidate from the organization, from the team has to be available every, I don't know, one to three weeks, something like right. that. That, that almost mandates that you don't arrive at the end of the sprint with a lot of known defects. You can't really, you couldn't be releasable, right? You know that that's the theory, and I think on a on a well-run uh, Scrum project, which is what we're talking about, if we're talking about one to three weeks, uh, I think that that's right. Uh, you know, I would characterize that as one of the higher discipline practices that teams tend to drift away from. And when we work with uh, organizations that are not, you know, completely satisfied with their Scrum implementations, I think that's an area where the teams have often let themselves relax and so they'll let stuff slide through that you know two-week sprint boundary or whatever uh, and i think that's a mistake you know basically they're kidding themselves about their real rate of progress if they're not actually driving everything to meet the definition of done at the end of the sprint uh, and you know that that's just a, a downward spiral that ends up uh, adding other problems beyond that so you know to me that's one of the first things you fix is that if your team is not actually driving the work to fully meet its definition of done at the end of each sprint, then you need to put that discipline in place. And that doesn't mean that you need to force the team to work an extra 40 hours every two weeks to comply with its definition of done. It means you need to get realistic about how much work the team is actually getting done in each sprint. The likely it is you're probably going to feel like you're slowing down a little bit at first because the, the reason the team is taking shortcuts is because they're under, they feel like they're under schedule pressure and they're taking shortcuts because they want to, they're starting to elevate the appearance of progress over the reality of progress. And so to make real progress, we've got to break that cycle of elevating the appearance of progress over the reality and allow the team to make real progress, which is going to at first make it seem like they're going slower. But this is one of those cases where if we really want to go fast, we got to slow down first and get it right. And then we can right. speed up once we've actually, once we're doing it the right way. But we, speeding up when we're doing it the wrong way doesn't help. 
Yeah, there's some teams that do the so-called healing sprints or, or the, you know, a sprint is the end of the sprint to kind of fix stuff as they jammed it through and just get to the point where they know they've completed something. And that's, that's not a healthy behavior either because you're, you're not really – those sprints are not add, adding business value at the time. Yeah, I could play devil's advocate on how that might be okay once in a blue moon, but um, I think that's the degree to which it's okay is once in a blue moon. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Well, I think we're going to have to close it here. Um, this is a really interesting topic. I think we just started unpacking it. And, and I think I mentioned before, we're going to actually revisit this in uh, the next podcast in more detail. So by that makes me happy because by definition, you're committed to come back. <laughs> well, you know where to find me. <laughs> I think I do. So thanks again for taking the time and talking through these principles with us. I think it has been really helpful. Yep. Thanks for a great uh, session and a great conversation. Thank you, listeners and viewers um, today. If you've been listening to us live this time around, be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer and Devin Musgrave is our producer. If you enjoyed this uh, particular episode, um, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or wherever you actually normally find us. If you have some comments or you want to talk to one of our practitioners or if you have some ideas for a future podcast, reach out to us via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We really would love to hear from you if you have some thoughts on that. Keep staying safe out there, everybody, and have a great next sprint.